Good morning, church. It's great to see you all, and welcome to our friends who are with us online. Thank you for logging in and worshiping with us from wherever you may be right now. If you have your Bibles, let's take a look at our scripture reading for today, which will come from 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to read from verses 1 through 13. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. I'll read the passage for us, and you can follow along as you're reading in your Bibles. And, of course, the verses will be shown on the screen as well. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. Here's a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now, the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must, have, he must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Amen. This is God's word. Uh, can I pray for us once more? Lord, we ask that you would uh, be with us as we now look into this passage and many other texts that deal with this important core value of biblical governance. We give you this time and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, let me start off with a question. The question is, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear the word Government. Is it taxes, corruption, a broken system badly in need of reform? Man, these are all negative thoughts. Any positive thoughts? Maybe some of us still believe that our government protects us and helps us in our time of need. I visited countries like Haiti and North Korea where you can definitely see the effects of poor government. At the very least, many of us can hopefully still say that our government has some well-meaning officials who perhaps just happen to find themselves in extremely tough situations. Many of us have undoubtedly come to realize that leadership matters. We've learned this from our experiences at work or even when we volunteer for an organization or a cause. I'm sure many of our students here have experienced 
how different it can be when, for example, you have a good coach versus a bad one. Leadership isn't important only for youth sports teams, though. It's also true of large companies, schools, professional sports franchises, right, Cub fans? And yes, for that matter, entire cities and states and even countries. Many of us here, we felt the negative effects of poor leadership. But some of us have also experienced the benefits of good leadership. When leaders do their job well and the people can see that they're competent and that they're trustworthy, well, everyone benefits. And if good leadership is important for all of these various organizations and entities, how could that also not be true of the church? But this immediately raises another question. What does good church leadership look like? And who even defines that? How do we know good church leadership when we see it? When everyone in the church is happy? Or at least majority of the people? When the church is growing? When the annual budget keeps increasing and the number of hits on our YouTube channel keeps climbing? Here's another question. Can we take certain leadership practices that have been proven to work in the corporate world and apply them to the church setting? And if so, which ones? And how do we decide? When RCC was planning to launch back in 2010, a few of us came together to discuss what our core values would be. Many of these seem pretty obvious. It makes sense, for example, for a church to value things like the Word of God and worship and the church's local and global mission. But that third one on this list, biblical governance, biblical governance, that one might seem a bit odd, but it's important. Biblical governance is actually more important than some Christians may realize. If you look on our website, rccneighborville.org, and click the link near the top that talks about our core values, you'll see this description under the heading of biblical governance. It reads, we believe Jesus Christ is the head of the church, and that he delegates authority to godly leaders who are to govern with humility, love, and by example. The New Testament frequently refers to such leaders as a group, Acts 14.23, 1 Timothy 5.17, James 5.14, indicating that plurality seems to be the normative pattern for local church governance. Restoration Community Church seeks to adopt this pattern. Now, I'm not sure if reading any of that made any of us here or any of us watching feel any kind of excitement at all. Maybe your eyes started glazing over as you saw that description. But if I can share a bit more candidly, this issue of biblical governance has taken on a greater importance in the larger church and even in my own life. I know a good number of us here are aware of the recent church scandals that have made the evangelical news headlines. We've heard of pastors and other leaders who've been charged with serious allegations of misconduct and abuse. And many of those ministries suffered, and some even imploded, because of serious flaws within their leadership structures. And so this topic of biblical governance isn't just some random theoretical issue. It's actually really important. 
Some scholars have wisely noted a distinction between what they call the church's existence and the church's well-being when it comes to biblical governance. What I mean by that is Christians can hold different views on church government. If you grew up in an independent Baptist church, for example, your view of church government is probably different than a believer who was raised in an Episcopalian church or a Reformed church or a non-denominational church. Whatever tradition you grew up with or whatever identity that you had, at least in terms of the- theological tradition, chances are you still respect your fellow Christian brothers and sisters who may hold a different view on this topic. If I put it differently, you probably wouldn't accuse them or accuse their churches or accuse the traditions they grew up in as being dangerous or heretical. In other words, the church's existence does not depend on having the correct view of governance, which means you may listen to what I share today and find yourself disagreeing with me, and that's okay. That's okay. The church's existence thankfully doesn't depend on whether I'm right and you're wrong or vice versa. But whatever views on this matter we may hold, I think many, if not all of us here, would still say that good leadership is important for the church's health. Biblical governance is important for the church's well-being. So let's dive in. Let's dive into this core value of biblical governance. We're going to start with the passage we read for today's scripture reading, and then we're going to jump around to a bunch of other texts that touch on this topic. And I just want to say from the outset here, fasten your seatbelts. Because entire books from really smart people, much smarter than I am, have been written on this topic. And I'm going to try to cover a lot of ground in just one sermon. Here we go. All right. In 1 Timothy 3, our passage we read this morning, the Apostle Paul is advising his younger colleague, Timothy, about the qualifications for two specific groups of church leaders. And those groups are elders and deacons. Elders and deacons. The qualification for elders are listed from verses 2 through 7. And by the way, our passage uses the word overseers to refer to elders. I believe those are two different words that are talking about the exact same thing. They're synonyms. And I'll talk more about that in a bit. So the qualifications for elders or overseers goes from verses 2 to 7 and then The qualifications for deacons runs from verses 8 to 13. Now, theologians have also used another word to describe these leadership roles, and that word is officer. These traditions, elders and deacons, are officers, and they're called officers because these leadership roles don't show up just here in 1 Timothy 3. They're mentioned throughout the New Testament. And that's an important clue that Paul wasn't giving instructions for Timothy to apply only at the church in Ephesus where he was pastoring at the time. In other words, these are instructions for every church. Now, in one sense, elders and deacons are like every other Christian. They have the responsibility and the privilege to use their gifts to serve their fellow sisters and brothers in Christ in the church. But in another sense, these officers are unique because they're to serve the church specifically by leading the church together in humility and love. 
The specific way they serve is what makes them unique. They're to serve by leading the church together in humility and love. Now, we'll come back to our passage soon, but we're going to zoom out now for a bit and take a look at some other texts that talk about biblical governance. And as I do that, I'm going to offer three principles about this core value of biblical governance. Okay, three principles about biblical governance. The first is that Jesus is the true leader of the church. Jesus is the true leader of the church. There's no other place we can start but here. Jesus is the true leader of the church. And here we go to Matthew chapter 16, where we find a story where Jesus asks his disciples if they know who he really is. And if you're familiar with the story, then you know what happens. Peter, who often was known to speak first and then think afterwards, Peter actually gives the correct answer. Verse 16, he says, You are the Messiah, or the Christ, the Son of the living God. To which Jesus replies in verse 17, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now those are such comforting words there in verse 18. Jesus promises that he will build the church and that nothing will be able to overcome it, not even the gates of Hades. And that phrase, by the way, is shorthand for death. What's the number one fear among most people, even today? Well, it's death. And this point is, even our most feared enemy will not be able to defeat what Jesus promises for the church. Why? Well, there's a specific word in verse 18 that tells us why. It's because the church belongs to him. Says, on this rock, I will build my church. And the idea here is that Jesus is the true Lord and King and leader of the church. It belongs to him. We belong to him. And as discouraging as things may be for the church at times, and yes, we are living in some very discouraging times for the church, what he promises us here is that his purposes will ultimately prevail because the church belongs to him. We see the same idea emphasized in Paul's letter to the church, uh, to the Colossian Christians. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, it says, And Jesus is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the Supremacy. These are just two of so many verses that describe Jesus as the true leader of the church. We can see this even from the way different New Testament verses refer to Jesus with certain titles or offices. So, for example, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1 describes Jesus as our apostle and high priest. In John chapter 10, Jesus refers to himself as the true shepherd. Some of us are aware of the fact that shepherd is often a synonym for pastor. That's what the word actually means in the original language. A pastor is a shepherd. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Jesus is described as the shepherd and overseer of our souls. I mentioned earlier that overseer is often a synonym in the New Testament for elder. So when we see Jesus described in these different ways, he's our true apostle. He's our true shepherd and overseer. We could rightfully say that Jesus is the church's only true officer. 
Guy Waters, a New Testament scholar, argues this very point in his book, How Jesus Runs the Church. He says, Jesus contains in himself, by way of eminency, all the offices of the church. It is for this reason that the scriptures call Jesus apostle, Hebrews 3, shepherd, John chapter 10, and overseer, 1 Peter 2. Therefore, we may never detach office and gifts for office from the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the true leader of the church. Jesus is the church's only true officer. That's our first lesson for today, which means any church governance must be sure to uphold and not usurp Jesus' sovereign and exclusive rule over his people. That takes us to our next point. This one will be the longest for today's sermon, just a heads up. Our second lesson, our second principle for biblical governance is that Jesus delegates authority to godly leaders to govern and serve the church. Jesus delegates authority to godly leaders to govern and serve the church. I mentioned earlier that a passage from 1 Timothy 3 lists the qualifications for elders or overseers and deacons. But if Jesus is the church's only true leader, as we argued in our first point, then we can safely conclude that these elders and deacons don't really possess any power in and of themselves. Rather, they govern and they serve the church with a delegated authority. They lead because they have sensed that God has called them and gifted them for these offices. We see this from another passage, Ephesians 4, where Paul says, For Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Now what's interesting here is the Apostle Paul lists not just certain gifts, spiritual gifts, but he lists specific leadership offices that Jesus has bestowed upon the church for its benefit. And when certain believers begin to sense that God has called them and gifted them to lead, the church will often also recognize this calling and gifting. If I put it differently, the individual Christian will often begin to sense a subjective sense of calling and gifting for servant leadership. But the church will also often provide objective confirmation of that calling and gifting to lead. And very often this confirmation happens through some kind of formal ceremony that can even involve a laying of hands by other church leaders as a sign of God's blessing and empowerment upon those uh, brothers and sisters who feel called to serve in these ways. This apparently happened to Timothy when God called him to pastor the church in Ephesus. A group of elders laid their hands on him to affirm his gift and pray for God's empowerment. The same thing happened in the church in Jerusalem when the apostles laid hands and prayed for a group of men who were chosen by the church to oversee an important ministry to widows. We'll come back to this passage from Acts 6 a bit later. Now, I noted earlier that Jesus delegates authority to godly leaders to govern and serve the church. And here, I want to emphasize the word godly. Jesus delegates authority to godly leaders to govern and serve the church. 
If we take a closer look at the qualifications for overseers or elders and deacons from our passage this morning, we'll notice that Paul doesn't list different skills or abilities. He doesn't say, for example, that elders should be gifted communicators or elders should be extroverts or elders should have a high IQ or anything like that. He instead lists a number of character qualities. He starts in verse 2 by saying elders should be above reproach. Paul's not saying that elders have to be perfect or sinless. If that were the case, then nobody would be qualified for this office other than Jesus. I think Paul is talking more about what New Testament scholar Bob Yarbrough describes as stellar character and free of obvious or provable black marks against his character. Then Paul follows with other character qualities such as being faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, and so on. And he keeps going on and on, character quality after character quality, all the way down to verse 7. And then in verse 8, he turns his attention to the deacon office. And it's the same thing. Not gifts or abilities necessarily, but character qualities, like being worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, not pursuing dishonest gain. Now, on the one hand, we don't want to downplay the importance of giftedness for effective leadership. I'm sure many of us here have experienced the benefits of listening to an extremely gifted preacher or teacher of the word. We know how wonderful that can be. We've also watched in awe as certain leaders have been able to exert enormous influence through their own personal charisma or their ability to rally people toward a vision or their media savvy or their penchant for somehow attracting quality people and leveraging their gifts or their ability to think outside the box and come up with creative solutions for problems that would stump leaders with lesser abilities and so on and so forth. It's a wonderful thing to see these gifted leaders do their thing. But many of us, I'm sad to say, are only too familiar with stories of churches and ministries that have crashed and burned. And in many of these cases, it was because of some kind of serious character flaw in the leader. For too long, people around them are willing to ignore or even put up with those flaws because their incredible gifts somehow made it okay for them to be quick-tempered, or verbally abusive, or unhesitant about crossing certain boundaries. Now mind you, these sins are not beyond God's forgiveness, and their stories can be redeemed when there's genuine confession and repentance, and in some cases even restitution. But there's also no denying that the church has suffered great harm from these sad stories. Again, biblical governance may not be necessary for the church's existence. The church exists because of the gospel and because of the spirit of God. But biblical governance is crucial for the church's well-being. Jesus delegates authority to godly leaders to govern and serve the church. I would even argue, from what I've experienced, that godliness may be even more important than giftedness.
Now that I've said all this, I want to note that when the church confirms the calling and gifting of certain believers for these leadership offices, they govern and serve with authority. Again, it's a delegated authority. Jesus delegates authority to godly leaders to govern and serve the church, but they do have real authority. Otherwise, they would not be able to carry out their duties. And so the question is, how are these leaders supposed to exercise this authority? Well, perhaps we can answer that question by asking another question. How does Jesus, as the church's only true officer, lead his people? And the answer from most Protestant theologians is that Jesus rules over his church through his word and his spirit. Jesus rules over us through his word and his spirit. The spirit is the one who brings about our spiritual new birth. Jesus taught this during his famous conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And when we experience this rebirth, this regeneration by the Spirit, one of the immediate effects is that we gain a new capacity and a new desire to submit ourselves to God's Word and to obey God's Word. And Jesus rules over us by this same Word. So yes, church leaders like elders and pastors do possess real authority to carry out their duties, but this authority also comes with very clear boundaries. Guy Waters, who I quoted earlier, offers some helpful thoughts here. He says, by definition, officers of the church are authorized only to enforce the word of God. To do otherwise is to violate Christian liberty. The leaders of the church do possess real authority. This is what makes the church different than any other voluntary organization or society. But, again, this authority comes with distinct and clear boundaries. Since Jesus rules over us through his word and his spirit, many scholars have insisted that the authority of church officers is only what they call ministerial and declarative. This is the only way church leaders can exercise their authority. Their authority is strictly ministerial and declarative. What does that mean? Well, it means leaders in the church have authority to declare or to teach its beliefs or doctrine. They do have the authority to teach what they understand to be true and what they understand to be not true based on their interpretation of the word of God. Church leaders also have the authority to order its worship and administer the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, again, based on their understanding of the word. And yes, church leaders even have the authority to impose corrective discipline upon their members for their good. Again, that is a ministry, but again, based only on what Jesus has revealed through his word. I keep emphasizing the word here, our first core value, by the way, because it's the scriptures that set the terms and also the limits of the church's power. Sean Lucas, a pastor and historian, puts it even better. He says, Christ alone is the king of his church, our first point. He alone has authority to bind our consciences by his word. No one else may intervene in this way unless he could demonstrate that, quote, thus says the Lord, unquote. And so Christ's word provides both the warrant and the limit to the church's power over God's people. 
just to give some practical examples, it would be within my authority as a pastor to teach what the Bible has to say on a certain issue. But it would go beyond my authority if I said you should or should not vote for a specific political candidate or for a referendum that's on an election ballot. I think it would be within the scope of my authority as a pastor to tell a member that he or she shouldn't marry an unbeliever on the basis of what the Bible teaches in 2 Corinthians 6, but it would go beyond the scope of my authority to say you should marry this believer as opposed to that believer. I could give you my personal opinion, but that's all it would be. It would be just that and nothing more. Jesus delegates authority to godly leaders to govern and serve the church. Our passage from 1 Timothy 3, again, lists two specific offices. There's overseers or elders from verses 1 to 7. Again, overseers and elders are synonymous terms. And we join with many Protestant traditions that understand the primary duty of elders is to govern the church. Okay, the office of elder is an office of Governance, which is actually why our bylaws state clearly that the elder board is the primary decision-making body for our church. Later in the same book, uh, Paul tells Timothy that the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. This text, by the way, is the basis for our church's distinction between what we call ruling elders and teaching elders. Okay, just for your information, uh, Dave Cho and Ken Ha and Hung Ro are our ruling elders, and Pastor John Kim and I are the teaching elders. Now, we're all elders, and so we govern the church together. The distinction simply notes that the primary way that Pastor John and I carry out our governing duties is by teaching the Word. Verses 8 to 13 focus on the deacon office. And here again, we join with many Protestant traditions that understand the primary duty of deacons as being serving the church by overseeing specific ministries. And that's what the word deacon literally means in the original language. It's the noun form for the verb that means to serve. So if the office of elder is one of governance, the office of deacon is one of service. Now, that doesn't mean that deacons are less important than elders. I mentioned earlier that the story of how the church in Jerusalem appointed seven men to oversee an important ministry to widows, many scholars believe, actually, that these men were the church's very first deacons. And if that's true, then we can rightfully say the deacon office was created before the elder office. But more importantly, we can see from the story that if these deacons weren't appointed to serve in this way, then the apostles would not have been able to carry out their primary responsibilities to the word and prayer. And the widows in the church would have also suffered. In other words, both of these offices are absolutely crucial for the church's well-being. Deacons need to carry out their ministry of service so that the elders can carry out their ministry of governance. Jesus is the true leader of the church, and he delegates authority to godly leaders to govern and serve the church. All right, let's move on to our third and last point. And here, I want to say plural elder rule seems to be the normative pattern for local church governance. 
plural elder rule seems to be the normative pattern for local church governance. We see this in the book of Acts when we read, for example, about the first missionary journeys in the New Testament. When they returned from some of the towns where they had visited and ministered, Paul and Barnabas, it says, appointed elders, plural, for them in each church, and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. In a different New Testament book, Paul gives similar instructions to Titus, who was one of his other ministry colleagues. He says in Titus 1.5, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders, plural again, in every town as I directed you. Peter, another apostle, offers specific instructions in a letter he wrote to the churches in Asia Minor. He says, to the elders among you, plural, again, I appeal as a fellow elder and witness of Christ's sufferings who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Again, character qualities. Oh, I could cite so many of the passages. If we had the time, I could cite Acts 11.30. I could cite Acts 15, 22, 23. I could cite Acts 20, 17. I could cite Philippians 1, 1 or James 5, 14, on and on and on. The point here is that plural elder rule seems to be the normative pattern in the New Testament for local church governance. Now, why might this be? Well, I can think of at least two reasons from my own experience. First, a plurality of leadership offers a built-in system of checks and balances. Having a group of elders who govern the church together would, in theory at least, prevent one person from exerting too much power or influence. And so this is why, even though we distinguish here at RCC between ruling elders and teaching elders, we all have the same power when it comes to decision-making. Each of us gets one vote. I don't have any more say in a decision just because I'm the lead pastor. Secondly, this plurality of leadership allows us to leverage each person's unique gifts and experiences. I have definitely seen this happen at RCC. I have more than once found myself changing my opinion on a matter after I hear the other elders share from their perspective. And I have also seen these men step up and take ownership of ministry areas where I'm not nearly as gifted. Just to be completely honest, we have elders who are gifted with counseling or gifted with administration far more than I could ever hope to be. And our church is better for it. We are better because of them. I could not imagine serving in my role without the support and the partnership and sometimes the cover from these brothers. Jesus is the true leader of the church. That's our first point. Secondly, he delegates authority to godly leaders to govern and serve the church. And third and last, plural elder rule seems to be the normative pattern for local church governance. Now, I'm at 32 minutes and 40 seconds here, but as I get ready to finish, I want to close by sharing that the past couple years have taken me on a personal journey regarding this issue of biblical governance. And so I want to note for the record that from this point forward, I am sharing my own views 
on this matter, not our church's views. And I want to note that distinction because I've actually come to believe more firmly than before that a local church's leadership also needs to have an external governing body to provide an additional level of support and accountability for its officers. Now, if you asked me even two years ago if I felt strongly about this, my answer would be, uh, I'm not sure. I don't know. But my views, my own personal views, have definitely changed since then. The most important passage that I could cite here comes from Acts chapter 15. Let me read the first two verses. It says, Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, Unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders, plural, about this question. So we have this instance where elders from several churches in the region apparently met together to discuss this important issue of false teaching that was spreading through the church. And apparently this issue was too difficult for just one congregation's leadership to be able to handle on their own. If we keep reading on in Acts 15, we'll see that healthy deliberation and debate took place before the council reached a decision that was based on their collective understanding of Scripture. And then they wrote a letter to the churches with instructions on what they should do. And in the next chapter, we read about the effect that this decision had on the wider church, the effect that this decision from the higher court had on the wider church. Acts 16, verse 4 says, As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey so the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. The end result was a greater sense of peace and harmony for the church, the churches and the wired church. Now, the question, of course, and this is often a question in the book of Acts, is whether this story is describing a unique or singular event in the church's history or whether it's prescribing another normative pattern for biblical governance. It's always the interpretive challenge in Acts. Is it descriptive or prescriptive? Now, if you asked me again a few years ago, my answer would have been, oh, I I could go either way. And scholars are honestly divided. But I think now my answer is definitely, I think this is prescriptive. I see here a healthy model of an external governing body providing an additional level of guidance, support, and accountability for local church's officers. But again, and I want to end here, only insofar as God allows through his word. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our deep dive into this core value of biblical governance Um, I'm aware that a lot of this may have just come across as theory and uh, a lot to take in but many of us Lord have seen up close and personal and in some really heartbreaking ways honestly how 
it's so true that even if biblical governance may not be necessary for the church's existence, it's so important for the church's well-being. Father, I'm thankful that by your grace we were able to see the importance of this core value even from our founding days. I'm thankful for everyone who has served over the years as our deacons and our staff and our C group leaders and our men's group leaders and our women's group leaders our worship team leaders our RCC kids volunteers and Lord especially our elders and more than anything else Jesus we just want to look to you rely upon you and praise you as our true officer, Lord, King, and leader, not only of the church, but of our church. It's in you, ultimately, where we place our hope and our trust. And we lean, perhaps more than ever, on your promise that you will build your church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. We pray these things in your name.